Well, we've been talking quite a lot about uh, the classroom and uh, the little place where I used to teach you languages. And I'd love to talk in a future episode a lot more about that sort of thing. But um, as the sort of uh, leader of the uh, rock club, over the years at, at Henry Beaufort, I used to have, well, in fact, things that still haunt me to this day. There was this one guy, Greg Watkins. His father was the um, the conductor of the Hampshire County Youth Orchestra. And uh, he used to hang around school. I think he, maybe he was a peripatetic teacher as well. Yeah. And uh, Greg was a progger. And I encouraged him and he formed a band and they used to play covers of a band called Camel that I used to like back in those days. And um, one day his father came to me and he said, I'm very concerned that you are leading Greg astray uh, because um, his destiny is to be a, a classical musician. And, and now he's got involved in all this rock music and he, he's not interested in classical stuff anymore. And, and he literally said, I, I would like you to desist from encouraging him. Well, unfortunately, things got much worse because Greg became like a full-scale muso, <laughs> hippie, long-haired, prog-rocking motherfucker and uh, basically led this very unsuccessful life. I'm not being cruel to him. The poor guy has passed away, in fact. But uh, So Greg, uh, as one person I've had on my conscience um, because I... I could largely blame myself for maybe leading him astray yeah. and uh, deflecting him from a from a solid career. Yeah, I also a very uh, occasionally used to worry about Chris TT, who uh, had a really really good stab at being a, a successful musician, uh, and uh, again dedicated most of his adult life to trying to make it in inverted commas. And hmm. I'm definitely guilty of of encouraging him and um again i uh, used to have terrible pangs of conscience when when i realized that he was probably living more or less on the breadline and that you know I, I can't say i was to blame but every time he came to me and said you know am i doing the right thing i'd always say yes and and the other thing of course is that your dear parents I've, on several occasions i think once they wrote to me uh, once they rang me up and once they spoke to me in person they said <laughs> uh, we're really really worried about rich <laughs> What's he going to do with his life? You know, uh, and I said, well, you know, he's fantastic. Yes, but he's in this band and, and he's obviously not making any money and we're just worried. I said, no, it's a great band, you know. They, it, it might be really successful and, and even if it splits up, he's such a good musician, he can make money from sessions. All, all complete lies and crap trap, which I now deeply regret because uh, you've spent a lot of time on the breadline and it's all my fault, Rich. Well, yeah, it is all your fault and... Um... <laughs> No, it's no. It's, you're supposed to say not at all. Not at all. <laughs> nothing to do with you. No, nothing to do with you at all. Um, <laughs> no, well, it's it, it. No, it's it's not. Um, I think that oh, without sounding sounding too grandiose, you, you know, doing music is something that probably chooses you rather than you choosing it. If mm -hmm. you if you if you get the bug to do it and you. And you feel like you have something inside you that you have to get out, and that seems like a good form of expression for doing it. Then you're kind of stuck doing it, really. And I think I always had that. I don't know what I was fighting against, particularly apart from life itself. But yeah, I. 
it just seemed like it just seemed like a great form of expression probably a great form of expression for somebody who wasn't that confident about expressing themselves in in other ways and i would imagine you know chris and and whoever else would would have the same thing uh can I ask you then, when, when did you first feel that you had the calling, if that's not too uh, grandiose a word for it? Because well, you were, uh, yeah. I, I mean, to say I always love music is kind of crazy because sort of everybody does, don't they? I mean, nobody yeah. doesn't like listening to music. But the first, I mean, the music that I, weirdly enough, grew up listening to was my dad's record collection. And he was, like, really big into his trad jazz. And so Sunday mornings... Uh, there was always the, the sound of Sidney Bechet and Kid Ory and Henry Red Allen and people like that drifting up from the front room. So that's the first kind of music I heard, and, and I didn't get it at all. I mean, it just meant nothing to me and didn't mean anything to me till years and years later. Um, but oddly enough, but I, I was always, I guess because I, I was always into reading and I was always into films, and one thing that obviously goes along with films is is great soundtracks so many so many movies had great soundtracks and so the first albums that i ever owned myself were these jeff love orchestra big movie theme albums Ooh, i remember jeff love exactly exactly and and so there, there was like the great action or great disaster movies and it would have the theme tune to earthquake or jaws done by his orchestra but then the, the the big war movies theme. That I mean, that was just a that was a a complete, oh, complete ear opener to me. I mean, that had such fantastic stuff on it. I mean, the 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 theme from Where Eagles Dare, which to this day is one of my favourite things ever, ever, ever. And I think if I am ever in a rock band again, that's the music I'm going to come on to because it was on TV the other week and I watched it. I hadn't seen it for ages. And it's a brilliant movie, but the score is just fantastic. And oddly enough, I saw um, an, a one score which I didn't think was that fantastic. Was uh, and it wasn't on this album, I don't think. But the score to A Bridge Too Far, which is one of my favourite war movies about Arnhem. Um, mm. And then I read after watching it the other week that because um, I thought the sky—it's a real shame the score lets it down. But the score was actually written by somebody who took part in Operation Market Garden, who was actually at Arnhem. So in a way, you, have, you kind of had to forgive the producers for that one, but. Um, so yeah, that was that was my first intro to music, and I think those were all big orchestral uh, scores, weren't they? Yeah, and Radio Two—they probably still have a show called Music from the Movies. They probably do. Yeah, yes. and that, and I used to listen to that on a little um, little transistor radio, and so I heard stuff like you know Bernard Herrmann's Psycho for the first time, and so that was the, yeah, that was the first music that. Uh, that I was actually really, really into. Um, Were you into Ennio uh, Morricone? No, because I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have seen those films, um, and I wouldn't have uh, unless they were being played on that radio show. I wouldn't have heard it, which they, they might well have done. But uh, no, it was the. It was hearing. It was hearing things like Where Eagles Dare, and Jaws. And then going out and buying those albums. So whatever was on those two albums, probably specifically, are the things that sort of really got me 
got me hooked. So they weren't the original soundtracks. They were like no, um, the, music for pleasure yeah, cover versions totally. of those things. Yeah, it was like a, oh, fantastic. like a, you know, James Last plays whoever or something like that. Yeah. Jeff Love was, was that kind of deal. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, well, you surprised me. I, I would have sworn that it would have been sort of more guitar-based, your your original attraction to music. So there you go. It shows the influence of parents. Yeah, it? well, it was, yeah, it was after that that, yeah, after that I would have got into, I mean, I don't know. I, spe- I guess I remember hearing ABBA and bands like that. Um, but probably the first sort of radio band that i really love were probably probably blondie i would think did i ever tell you the story about uh our, our vague connection with blondie no when uh well in the in the late 70s i was managing a band in winchester called thieves like us hmm. and uh this is one of my one of my favorite stories which was completely true in every respect and it's a it's a it's a oh lucy shut up lucy i'm recording um, leave that in <laughs> You don't, you dare. Um, right, where was I? Oh, yeah. So in the late uh, 70s, I was managing this Winchester band called Thieves Like Us. And, uh, you know, there was a chance they might have got signed and done really well. Uh, and in, to that end, we were trawling around the um, the London pub circuit. Yeah. At the same time as New Wave and post-punk was going on. And uh, one of the places we played was this real dive of a place in the Harrow Road called the Windsor Castle, mm. still there. Featured uh, strippers at lunchtime, and then in the evening, it was uh, three or four bands, classic sort of typical pub rock setup, you know, with uh, several different ill-assorted, incompatible bands playing one after the other to a pretty much largely disinterested audience. On this particular day that I'm talking about, um, I, I was in charge of the lights such as they were like a couple of little <laughs> yeah. blinking blinking things on <laughs> on sticks um and uh this it was an irritating evening because there was a lot of idiots in the audience and this old bloke or to me he was old in a sort of dressed in a sort of rather grubby macintosh came up and he started talking to me and I, and I sort of said oh i'm really sorry I, i'm trying to concentrate on this you know i can't talk at the moment and he had an american accent Ooh. anyway he said uh he said, uh, well, uh, I'd like to talk to you about this band. And he, he didn't actually sort of say, I'm going to make them stars. But th- that was the implication. I thought, well, this is obviously just an old sort of drunken idiot that's walked in off the streets. Um, but before he went, he put a business card in my hand, which I just stuffed in my pocket. And it wasn't until late the next day that I even thought about it. And I looked at this business card and it said, Larry, you told Private Stock Records, New York. Now, it, the name didn't mean anything to me, but Private Stock meant something to me yeah. because he was, in fact, the guy who both discovered and signed and put out the early records by Blondie. Mm. So uh, far from being the uh, the sort of uh, complete time waster that I thought he was, he actually was genuine. He was a player. He was a player, and he'd actually moved over to the UK in, in order to kind of new, find new bands and set up a new label. Um, and he did, in fact, I won't go into all the details, it's totally boring for you, but um, he did, in fact, sign the band uh, into this completely 
terrible, useless deal, and uh, the whole thing collapsed uh, pretty soon afterwards. But that is my very, very uh, distant connection to Blondie, Richard. Well, it's yeah, it's, it's a lot closer to any connection to Blondie that <laughs> I have, that's for sure. <laughs> but they were, they were. So, I, I, I'd kind of not. Obviously, you don't forget about Blondie, but I hadn't listened to any Blondie for ages, and I did a little while ago, and plastic letters and parallel lines i mean just just phenomenal pieces of work i mean it's it's kind of hit after hit after hit just so 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 good so I mean, they're still going strong i saw them a couple of years ago clem burke in my opinion one of the greatest drummers that ever walked the face of this earth is uh, still in there he he plays like that drummer from the pretenders behind these uh, massive great plexiglass yeah uh, shields which i you know now everywhere i go every supermarket i think Oh God, that's like just like Clem Burke because uh, everybody's behind these um, see-through plastic shields at the moment. I guess it, I guess when Moon died, if Blondie hadn't been huge then, which they probably were, because that's probably what seventy-nine, eighty or something. Yeah, I bet the would have been around then. I yeah. bet the Who would have gone for Clem Burke because yes. I mean he is like a, a Moon copyist, isn't he? But he's, <laughs> well, well, he's, he's a br- bit he's less brilliant, but he's he's yeah. you know he's got that thing. He can do Keith Moon. Oh, totally. But he's, he doesn't thrash around as much as Keith Moon quite. You know, he's more of a, he's very, very solid. Well, yeah, he's more of a rhythm player than a lead player, which was, I mean, that's the weird thing about The Who, that their their bass player and their drummer were the lead players. So, Anyway, we mustn't get diverted onto The Who. Yeah, we need to go sorry. back to little, so here's this uh, little uh, shy person sitting in the front row of my classes. Mm. And I'm now wondering, was there anything between this and me becoming aware that you were actually beginning to play in bands or did we did we talk about music after lessons and things we did we we talked about well we talked about music in lessons <laughs> there was there, there were, i remember one Which, uh, i was supposed to be teaching oh yeah well, of course of course um, there was one lesson where we had to i don't know if it was homework but we we had to write a paragraph about doing something. You know, there was obviously some verb, yes. some some verb thing that you were teaching us. I was going to say trying trying to teach us. You were teaching us. It was just some <laughs> of us. Spielen probably. That, Spielen to play. Exactly. That's exactly the word. Um, and the little bit that I wrote was a thing about learning to play a dead Kennedy song. <laughs> And obviously, quote, quote me a few Dead Kennedy song titles, please. Oh, Kill the Boar Paw, Holiday in Cambodia, Let's Lynch the Landlord, Nazi Punks, <laughs> Fuck Off. I mean, where do you want to just seminal band? So, uh, wow. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, and so I don't. And I, and I know there was something. Is, is, is Spiel in the sense of play? Can you do you use that when referring to playing an instrument or not? Definitely. Oh, you yes, do. Absolutely. Okay. So that wasn't yeah. the probably just that probably that was the only right word in the whole paragraph. But yeah. So I remember I remember handing that in and, and you nodding sagely and going, "Oh, Dead Kennedys reference in somebody's homework." That's <laughs> uh, an I'm just thinking, word. "Ich spiele gern Ferien in Cambodian." Genau. Von den Toten genau. Kennedys. Yeah, maybe. Well, it was. Uh, yeah. So we. Yeah, we did do a bit, and we probably spoke before and after. And there was Rock Club, of course. But I don't, I sure. don't remember. I, I think it's because I'd met Adam and Robert Drama Club, and they wanted somebody else in their band, and I didn't play anything. Hence, why I ended up playing drums. But then, guitar seemed a much more sensible instrument. Obviously, more sensible than the the tenor horn, as we've covered before. 
<laughs> but it was a case unless of, you're in the Jeff Love Orchestra. Unless, yeah, yeah. You see, yeah, maybe I could have stuck with that and done gone down that route. But there was uh, my sister had uh, a cheapy nylon string guitar, so I just started playing that. And I think I started playing that because you know, even though I love Blondie, there wasn't like a thing where I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. But for me, I mean, it would have been Stiff Little Fingers and The Clash. That that would have been the point where I went, I want to do this. This is this makes absolute total sense to me. So I had a nylon string guitar and I was, you know, trying to work out how to play White Riot and Wasted Life and Alternative Ulster on it. And so white light, white, 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 unplugged. Yeah, exactly. So it would have, it would have been, that's kind of what got me into, that's what got me into that because all those records, I guess people like Adam and Rob were, were saying, go away and listen to this. And you'd hear other people talking about them. And even though I was obviously aware of the sex pistols, I mean, sex pistols to me never had any romance about them. So the the Sex Pistols never were the Sex Pistols made you want to do something, but you wouldn't necessarily know what it was you wanted to do. But when you heard the Clash, you knew that that thing that you wanted to do was play guitar in a rock and roll band. So that was a yes, they, they they were the quintessential role models, weren't they? They they had the politics, they had the attitude, they had the looks, they had the fashion, uh, and they had the. Uh, the musical chops as well. Yeah, the only band that matters, as the saying goes. So, so how old were you then? 13, 14, maybe, something like that. So it's quite, it's, so it's quite late. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's quite late. It's not, um, you know, I wasn't old enough for, for punk rock as it happened. But I was probably old enough for... I tell you what, I, I know I'm, I was old enough for when... Um, Combat Rock came out, the last Clash album, and that was 82. Right. So that that would be the only Clash album I bought when it came out. All the other ones I would have bought afterwards. It, does that make sense? Yeah, you see yeah, what yeah, I mean? Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense, yeah. Okay, so that, so we now have a trio, which consists of you on drums, yeah. Rob, yeah. Rob on bass, guitar, guitar, and Adam on bass. Yeah, and vocals, yeah. And were you called I Am 7 from the start? Yeah, as far as I know. I think there was, I think Mark Drew might have played drums, but then Mark Drew stopped playing drums. And then I think that's maybe why I got my big break playing <laughs> drums for I Am So a bit like Pete, Pete Best and Ringo, really. Exactly. Yeah, I was pulled from the crowd. And yeah, I, I, so yeah, and it was um, obviously, you know, we just weren't very good. I mean, just, just awful, really. But it, but were it, you doing covers or original songs? There was a couple of covers. God, I'd forgotten about that. We did, um, but it, it was mainly original. So Adam like wrote very kind of. He was writing kind of political punk songs, you know, um, not very subtle. But then maybe the idea wasn't to be subtle. But it was, it, you know, it really was what it was. It was a bunch of people who couldn't play their instruments very well that didn't really have much of an understanding of music or sound or much of an ability to write songs 
playing in a band which for some bands obviously works perfectly you know it comes together and they create their completely own unique thing and it's fantastic but that wasn't going to be the case for us so mainly it was stuff that adam wrote songs like follow the leader was one the killing joke song called that as well i think isn't there? but um and yeah the covers we did but we did a the thing the first gig that i think i played guitar at which would have been the second gig because we we got a drummer from eastley and a guy called pete briggs i remember um, him. Yeah. yeah and um we did in a rut by the ruts and we did teenage kicks so that's that i think those were the first two cover versions i i ever played but it was just um like i say it's difficult to describe it it was what it was we went down to this little um recording studio on hailing island and recorded toucan yeah that's it that's it yeah i think so yeah yeah and we yep, recorded um yeah there can't be that many recording studios on no. hailing island and we yeah we recorded a demo down there which had a few tracks on it in my head that was a bit later on though um, well, I have uh, uh, spent a lot of time in the shed recently, as you might imagine, and uh, I've come up with several um, I Am 7 cassettes. And so I sent off recently, having been seduced by an advert on Facebook, for one of these little devices where theoretically you can trans uh, transfer your uh, cassettes onto a, a memory stick. Uh, unfortunately, it's now six weeks since I ordered that item oh. and it still hasn't arrived. So I, I, I've got a feeling I might have lost 49 euros in the process. But one day I will get one of those things. And my plan is then to present you with these <laughs> and then get you to identify which which particular version of IM7 played which one. Because there were numerous versions of IM7, were there not? Yeah, there were. There was. Um, it went to being a trio when I went over to guitar. Rob left. So it was Adam on bass, me on guitar, and Pete Briggs on drums. And Pete lived in Eastley, but we used to we used to rehearse once a week, twice a week at the um, Week Community Centre, mm -hmm. and that always that was always such a strange experience because the people who used to let us in and let us out had no idea what what we were about <laughs> or what we were doing, and all our gear was awful and. I hadn't been playing that long, so I, w I was still in the stage where every time I picked up a guitar, it just hurt like hell on my left hand. And I remember playing with uh, sort of cotton wool and tape around the ends of my fingers because it was hurting so badly. Um, but yeah, there was that lineup. And then Pete stayed on. And then, and then well, do you remember Trevor Smart? I remember the name very well, yes. Yeah, Trevor Smart lived on Taplin's Road, and Trevor was in bands as well. And then Trevor. Trevor joined and so we had two guitarists and then that was that was quite a good and that's actually when I started writing some songs although that was always a bit difficult because well I remember the oh, I don't know the election that well what would it have been 83 or something when Thatcher got in again mm -hmm. um I remember saying to Adam god I was, I was saying to him god, you, god one of the another bad thing about this is that there's going to be some terrible punk band immediately coming out with a song called another five years next day adam had a song called another five years and it was that thing where i was thinking this like i said it wasn't subtle and i was just thinking even back then i remember thinking oh really is it is it this hit you over the head with a hammer kind of stuff but it was um yeah that that version with trevor was pretty good but that was the last version of 
that was the last version of I Am Seven I was in. Mainly because my we- my musical taste was sort of was 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 changing, and 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 nobody else in the bands was. You, you know, the most progressive anybody got listening to combat rock or listening to the jam doing something with horns was as about as uh-huh. ex- expansive as the other members musical listening got so uh, were you playing gigs at all no not really no it was <laughs> no it was more of a kind of um just hobby yeah, a hobby. When we played Henry Beaufort, we played up at M Block a few. So, so you must have, because I yeah. definitely recall seeing that band several times. Yeah, definitely. And there would have been other great bands. Play. There was one we did with Eleventh Commandment, which was Rod Chamberlain and Simon King's band. Who, I mean, they were a, they were a properly good band. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we were not by any stretch of the imagination. And it's I am seven. It's just a terrible, terrible name as well. Do we know where it came from? Who invented it? No, I think Adam just had an I am seven badge that he wore. Ironically, uh, you know the kind of thing that you get it, from yeah. a you get from a, a birthday card. Uh, but yeah, so I have this uh, evidence, in fact, a physical evidence that that you still when you were in IM7, used to try and get me to sort of write articles about you and, and promote um, the band because uh, you, therefore you must have been either uh, probably fifth year or maybe even already uh, working at Sperring's stroke, <laughs> stroke studying at Simmons by then. I would have done, uh, I wasn't in IM7 at Simmons so I left at the end of school. Um, and- but yeah. Now, was it was it a, a bloody breakup? Was or was it uh, very amicable? Was it the musical and personal differences? Or yeah. Punch d- up? No. Yeah. It was just musical and personal differences. It was. It was sort of. Oh, I. I just went. I just got into. I got into other stuff and wanted to do other stuff. I think, in a way, it's a bit of a fault, or it can be. It can be a fault. It can be problematic if you do music and you're into lots of different musical things, because you end up going wide on everything and long on nothing but I've, that's what yeah. I, that's what i've always done so like being in being in i am seven and being a kind of like not very good punky new wave band and then getting into other stuff and wanting to do other stuff was um for me like a completely natural thing and i couldn't understand why nobody else wanted to wanted to do it or nobody well, else. I, I have yeah. memories now of uh, further bands. Um, ones that come to my mind are um, On the Bus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was that then before or after uh, Strange Fruit? That was Talk us through those. That was before. That was, um, yeah, On the Bus were the band after I Am Seven. So I, I, I made the radical departure of going from punk rock to jazz fusion. <laughs> But the kind of jazz fusion you can only do when you're 16, when you absolutely, you don't know any better and you have nerves of steel because I say, yeah, you, you haven't, you have no concept that what you're doing is entirely wrong. So, um, yeah, that was, was that just an instrumental band with lots of twiddly widdly showing off going on? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I thought so. But still pretty like really tight and quite, quite dancey, I would say, because we had TJ on bass and yeah. and we had like a, a a weird sort of like we had a weird group of drummers that changed. So sometimes it would be Rod Chamberlain, 
other times Nick Bevan, sometimes Simon King, and then the mighty Julian Paul as well. Um, so, yeah, so Max on sax, <laughs> Abs on keyboards, me on guitar, Tej and a drummer. Uh, that sounds very much like the Spinal Tap exploding drummer uh, scenario. <clears throat> it was a bit. It was a bit. In fact, the whole thing's pretty Spinal Tap, really, isn't it? It's a, a, a jazz fusion played uh, 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 in the theatre bar. I remember used to play in the theatre bar, uh, it, which is this oh, literally God. the smallest bar you could ever imagine. And the, 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 the corridor to the toilets was behind the band. So whenever I or anybody else needed to go to the loo, we would have to sort of nudge our way through you, sort of elbowing you aside or, you know, yeah, saying, and also, excuse me. <laughs> because of all the gear that we had, um, <laughs> I remember once we played there, and obviously we, there was that there was the side door, and so nobody could get in the side door. You had to go in the front door. So we put a sign on the side door saying, "Please, whatever you do, do not use this entrance." And just <laughs> as we're getting everything set up, the door crashes open, and there's Ron Purse standing there oh. <laughs> with his maracas to join in because obviously Ron was in the band as well. Um, but that was the, well, but it, all that. Ron wasn't a permanent member, surely. No, was he? but he was a permanent member of Prince Boohoo, and Prince Boohoo and on the bus uh, went hand in hand. So there was this, this glorious pe- period in probably eighty four, eighty five, going into eighty six, where we we were playing the Tower Arts Centre every week because I was doing stuff up there. So yeah, Simon King had Prince Boo and his little smuts, which was the the big band that played lots of really crazy cover versions worked out in strange and interesting ways and sort of on the bus were a kind of offshoot of that but yeah on the on the bus were a really sort of weirdly important band to me and at simon's funeral me and abs were talking to Teej about this and we were saying to Teej, so you, you know like on the bus they're they're one of like the really important bands in your life aren't they and Teej was just like going no <laughs> god bless him I mean, it's absolutely fair enough i mean because he know, was teacher was on like another teacher must have thought what am i doing playing with these dorky kids who think that they're the mad vision of orchestra <laughs> he was probably uh fearing that you'd suggest reforming <laughs> <laughs> yeah no well I, I yeah i would though i would though that i mean that no actually i wouldn't because now now i know too much i know that we can't do it properly. Whereas yeah. the brilliance of being 16, 17 and in that band was that you had, you had no idea, you know, you'd be listening to weather report and those great Jeff Beck albums with Jan Hammer and thinking, yeah, we can do this. And we, you know, we had songs which were almost direct ripoffs of like, especially the Beck stuff around then. Um, but there, but you know, we, it was, it was at least it was doing something. It was, something being... bit, it was a bit different. At least it was like yeah. kind of like, and we had songs in weird time signatures. And I remember actually playing the theatre bar, and afterwards Paul Bringler going, "Hmm, I like that song in eleven eight, which was very, <laughs> very impressive to my young impressionable mind." <laughs> you know, there's uh, there's just a very small chance that there might be one or two people listening to this who who don't know that much about Winchester. So I'm just going to fill in one or two gaps there. So Paul Bringler was. Um, a virtuoso, well, sorry, is in still a, a virtuoso drummer. He now plays in a, a, a prog rock band called the Far Meadow, who in prog rock circles, I think, are, are very highly respected. But he was extremely technically minded. His his uh, hero was uh, Bill Bruford. 
Mm-hmm. And he played in the first year or so of, of that band that I was telling you about that, that I managed. But um, other people we've just been mentioning, Simon King, God rest his soul, who died, was it last year? Yeah. No, year, well, before, he, year before. He was, he was the only black person I ever remember seeing in Winchester in the sort of among the teenage population. The son, indeed, of Winchester's only black citizen, I think. Yeah, back then. And Simon uh, was in this punk band, initially got 11th Commandment, and then in the other one you mentioned, which he led, Prince Boohoo and his little smuts. Most extraordinarily wonderful, larger-than-life character in every respect, yeah. physically physically, and uh, and from the point of view of personality. Um, it was a terrible shock when he died. And another person who who is no longer with us and is even more famous if we're going to be sort of going down the road of talking about famous people from Winchester. Um, Ron Purse. Yeah. Now he's not known nationally, but uh, uh, to everybody, literally everybody in Winchester knew Ron. He was called Burping Ron uh, because he he liked to burp. And um, if you looked at him, you would have thought that he was a homeless person or a tramp of some kind. He spoke like that, didn't he? Now tell me if I'm getting it for you. Go, ah, oh, hello, how are you doing, mate? Jimmy Christmas. I. He, he looked like Wurzel Gummidge, or much worse, because he was overweight as well. And he used to push this, uh, yes, yeah, sorry, soon be Christmas. That was his catchphrase, wasn't it? Yeah. He used to push a, a not a supermarket trolley, it was a pram, pram. round Winchester with uh, various items in the pram. And he had a, a collection of, of rabbits, real rabbits. And so most of his conversation would be about the health or otherwise of his rabbits. Mm. And I remember one time, it must have been in the round about 1980, I suppose, I was writing for a German publisher. And the uh, chief editor of this company was on a trip to England. She said, could I come to Winchester and meet up and we'll discuss a new project? She was a kind of lady in her 60s, very, very respectable uh, conservative person. And I, I said, of course, and, and I never forget, I'm walking down the high street with her. I want to take her to Rishu, which was the, the rather smart coffee shop at the time. And of course, inevitably, up comes Ron in his pram. And I'm trying to make a good impression on this woman. And he goes, ah, 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 who's this then? Oh, oh, German. Oh, no, I don't like Germans. It was absolutely mortifying, as you might well imagine. He's a great level. Oh yes, and uh, I did. I did get the project anyway. But um, but you said you said saying that Ron <laughs> doesn't have any national significance, but he really has. He has an, a slight international fan base because our friends James Knights and Jules, who are in the band Knights, they do Ron impressions so much <laughs> that Jim's bandmate Nina in Berlin is now known to do. <laughs> a Ron Purse impression and can do it pretty well. So, so there is, there is Ron, Ron, there's a Ron rep, Ron's being represented in Neukölln. Well, Berlin, the thought so of, the thought, the thought of Ron being a, a hip Berliner really is mind blowing, but there is Actually, a connection. No, he you is know. Pretty, he's pretty Kreuzberg really, wasn't he? He was, yeah. he was Kreuzberg <laughs> before Kreuzberg. 
<laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, I, I, I miss Ron. He he used to um, do all the clearing out all the papers for recycling from the printing firm Sarsen Press that I've mentioned before. Where that you know when I was a publisher, they used to do all my printing for me, and I'd have lengthy conversations with Ron. And it was great that those guys down there, nobody else would have given Ron a job. Yeah, and yet it gave him a great purpose in life. Uh, he was there every day. He had a, an important role to play, and it was something he could do. But uh, I was going to just say there's a there's a strange bit of uh, circularity going on here because, as you may remember, when I was uh, doing the uh, music column in the Chronicle in 1978, we had a uh, pop poll, uh, and pop personality of the year was Debbie Harry. Oh, and in number two position was Ron Purse. Uh, oh, that is that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. Well, so he Ron, would, uh, well, if Ron you, was a runner-up to Debbie in the in the in that poll. If you were if you were in any band around that time, probably from nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty five, eighty six, if if you, and you played in Winchester, if you played places like the Art College, yep. or the Tower, or wherever, uh, if you if you show photographs, if you have photographs of those gigs and you show them to people, they go, "Oh yeah, wow, wow look, that looks really," it. and then they'll they'll stop and they'll go. Why is, Who's what, that? What's that weird person doing standing on the end? And you just go, well, it's Ron. And they're going, why were you in a band with that guy? And you and you can't really explain. You can't really explain no, no. that if you were playing the art college, no matter, you know, whether it be on the bus or Prince Boohoo or whoever, or Strange Fruit, because uh, all oh, the Rockets, I remember doing, there's photographs of a, a Rockets gig and there's me, Cave looking pretty cool, Martin Doswell, and there's ron as well you know and it's it's just a natural thing it's like if you were in a band then ron was in your band and that was it a legend has it that he played maracas with throbbing gristle at the art school so uh that would have been worth experiencing yeah that throbbing gristle at the art college thing that's sort of gone into legend hasn't it i was there yeah uh so it did happen yes it is genesis p orridge and cosy funny Tutti. They had some connection with somebody there, and uh, and so that that's how the gig came about. And if I remember rightly, it was I, I loved it, but it was it, it consisted of mainly of droning noises that went on for an hour and then stopped. Is it is it is it Winchester's equivalent of that Manchester gig with the pistols and the buzzcocks? Does everybody say that they were there? But if everybody who did say <laughs> they were there were actually there, the, the union would have had to have held five thousand people. No, I, I don't think so, because um, let's face it, 99% of the population would never have heard of uh, Throbbing Gristle, and so therefore probably all the people who claimed to be there actually were there. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of uh, other famous Wintonians, you know. Um, the most, uh, probably the most famous Wintonian was Brian Eno, uh, who uh, I think managed a whole four-year fine art course at the uh, art college mm. but um apparently now a friend of mine will claims he once saw brian uh, at a bus stop in uh, in littleton uh, with uh, purple hair um <laughs> <laughs> in fact it's what he says is one of his proudest moments that he once stood near brian Eno. But uh, Brian Eno doesn't seem to be remotely interested in uh, revisiting his Winchester past, as opposed to Robin Hitchcock, who nowadays comes back and, and performs uh, fairly regularly in Winchester, having been uh, to Winchester College and grown up near Alsford. But he, he lives in Nashville now, and uh, 
Uh, I was just corresponding with him today, actually. He's, he, he has very fond memories of, of Winchester. But on a musical basis, I have regret to say the most famous musician ever to come out of uh, Winchester was Mike Batt of Wombles fame, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. I've always hoped. I hope you, Richard. I hope Christy T, uh, various people, even Greg <clears throat> Watkins. I always ho- hope they'd have a number one in the charts, and I'd be able to say... Yes, I taught that person, but well, you know, you know what, happened. you know what the difference is between me, Greg Watkins, Chris T T, and Mike Bat is, don't you? <laughs> no, but you're going to tell me. You didn't teach Mike Bat. Ah, sugar. Of course, <laughs> it's all falling that, into place now, isn't it? That is falling into place. Well, it actually, even worse than that, because uh, um, there was a famous musician at Henry Beaufort, and we didn't get on. Uh, he's John Bowden. Uh, leader of Bellowhead. Oh, did you and, not get on uh, with him? I don't know the guy no, at all. No, well, I got on very well with his brother. They were part of the Bowden family who were uh, very big and influential at the BBC. Oh. You see their credits on, uh, their names on credits at the end of programmes a lot. And uh, I was friends with his, well, friends, you know, like I was friends with you. I was a teacher who looked after the welfare of his brother. Um, and I, John just didn't like me at all because he always was a folk artist. And I was very contemptuous of folk back then. I'm not anymore uh, because I was into punk and stuff like that. So he didn't approve of me. In fact, he's very serious minded. I remember every time I think of him, all I think of is he's frowning all the time. Um, And so he didn't like me, basically. Hmm. And of course, lo and behold, he's the only one that goes on to become successful. Well, there's, there's definitely a theme occurring here, isn't there? <laughs> God, and I, I feel really depressed now. 